We recorded this interview with Mayor Pete before recent allegations emerged that he mischaracterized or outright misstated key Black Democratic officials' support for his Douglas plan in South Carolina. These allegations make hearing from Mayor Pete himself that much more important. With that, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. We're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they will help the movement for racial justice. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. Our guest today is Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana. Mayor Pete is the youngest Democratic candidate for president and the first mainstream candidate who was openly gay. He served as a lieutenant in the United States Navy Reserves and was deployed in Afghanistan while serving as mayor of his hometown, a position he still holds. In his second term, he signed an executive order for South Bend's Community Residence Card Program, providing undocumented immigrants with a legal form of identification. During my conversation with Mayor Pete, he shared what he learned from public criticism about his response to South Bend's police shooting of 54-year-old Black father, Eric Logan. Mayor Pete and I discussed his racial justice plan, how exactly he would go from rhetoric to action, and how he would hold big tech corporations accountable as part of that vision, especially given that he took recommendations on staffing his campaign from Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. Since our conversation took place before it happened, I was not able to talk with him about an internal Buddha Judge campaign memo that recently made its way into the press, a memo about their focus groups with Black voters. As they often do, the media has predictably taken the bait and turned to blaming Black voters. But the memo actually emphasized how policy statements have not been enough to engage them. Sort of like, how do we move people from the what to the how? Welcome, Mayor Pete. Um, I'm so glad that you're here to talk to us about racial justice. Um, Not just what you think uh, we need to do and what we need to achieve, but how we're going to get there um, and the role that you see yourself playing in making that change possible. When it comes to social change, any type of social change, we talk a lot here about knowing the difference between presence and power. Um, And what I mean by that is Black people are deeply present in our society, from everywhere online to the issues on the debate stage. But that doesn't mean that that presence is enough to make anything happen. Um, We actually have to have power to make that change happen. And if we settle for presence alone, um, we don't actually get the things we need to make real change happen. Almost every candidate, including yourself, has a platform around race, around racial justice, the things that they say they want to implement. But today, rather than talking about all the details of the policy, we'll talk some about that. We're going to actually talk about the how, about how do we actually get there? How are you going to work with movements? How are you going to work with communities to achieve that, to make racial justice real? And so I really want to just start off by um, having you talk a little bit about, um, for folks who don't know you, for folks who haven't had a chance to hear you talk yet, a little bit about uh, what racial justice means to you, how it's played a role in your life and in your career up to this point. 
Sure. So uh, I come from a diverse community. South Bend is about uh, about 25% uh, African-American, about 15% Latino. Uh, and it's a community that's really wrestled with these issues for as long as I've been alive and longer. Uh, I've also found as, as I came to politics that the things that, that I admired most in the story of how people make change in society have often had to do with racial and social justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like the, the moments that we most want to celebrate in modern American life are moments like the civil rights movement where we feel like progress happened and yet also are reminded constantly, especially in our time, uh, how incomplete that progress is. And as somebody whose own journey has been based in the belief that when you get involved in public service, when you get involved in public office, you have a chance to handle not just technical problems, but moral problems. It's part of what animates and motivates my desire to serve. So, you know, you've introduced the Douglas Plan, and it's a pretty large, comprehensive plan, uh, like a lot of the plans are. And it's a lot of what the movement has called for. Oftentimes, though, once Democrats get into office, we somehow don't necessarily see those sort of big systemic plans that we're pushing for actually move once folks are in office. So I'm interested, first and foremost, of why this, why these issues matter to you. Um, if you can sort of Give us a little bit more of a sense of why the issues in the Douglas plan resonate to you. Well, first of all, it's an understanding that our country won't make it if we don't resolve the problem of systemic racism, in my opinion, in my lifetime. Of all the forces that have threatened to destroy America, the one that came closest to doing it, to actually ending the American project, was white supremacy in the form of what happened in the Civil War. And I think what's happening right now, and part of what's motivating me to do uh, a non-obvious step as a mayor of South Bend and run for president in the Trump era, is an awareness that these forces are gathering and are uh, threatening the entire American project for for all of us, not just people of color who are uh, on the, the end of these patterns of exclusion. And I know a little bit about exclusion, too. Uh, I don't mean to say that I understand uh, as a white person what it is like to be discriminated against because of race. I do understand as a gay person what it is like to be part of a group that has been feared and hated and denied opportunities. And I'm mindful that uh, things like the right, my right to marry came about not only because of the leadership and activism of people like me, but because of the support of people not like me. And that helps me, I think, be conscious of the obligation that I have to support anybody else who is on the wrong side of any other fence of exclusion in our society. Also, part of what we're trying to do by releasing the Douglas Plan, which I believe is the most comprehensive plan put forward in the 2020 race on tackling systemic racism, is that by laying it out now, by releasing and specifying it now, I would come into office with a mandate to get it done. In other words, the American people would know that they had elected a president who had said that these things mattered. And frankly, the pressure that comes with it to deliver on these ideas we've put forward on reform from housing to and home ownership to health to education to justice, voting rights and beyond. So with if I can go through your plan, I could list a force that's standing in the way of each one of those areas of progress. You know, you have housing, you have banks, you have all sorts of system. When you look at jobs, you have the role that corporations have played. When you look at the criminal justice system, you have all the ways that profiteer structures have been set up that make it really hard to undo a system that so many people are benefiting off of. So talk to me about 
how you're going to deal with those forces because you're not the first person to come up with a plan to help push past systemic racism. What makes the not just the what of your plan, but the how of your plan different? Well, it's the focus on democracy uh, because the, the bulwark that we have against those forces that you named and others is the fact that our, our democratic system, in theory, is supposed to create a counterweight where the will of the American people, uh, mobilized and summoned in the right way, can overpower any kind of financial and other interest. But it's one of the reasons why our democracy itself needs to be reformed. I mean, as long as we have districts being drawn to where politicians can pick out their voters instead of the other way around, as long as uh, voter suppression, much of it racially motivated, is tolerated. Frankly, in my view, as long as you have election officials refereeing their own elections, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, these structural problems need to get fixed because as long as we have those, it's going to be very difficult to gather, even when there's an American majority, to do these things, which there generally is, uh, and bring it to actual change. I'm very mindful of that because I think we've also lived through the experience of seeing why good intentions are not enough. Uh, and even why sometimes the right policies are not enough if they come one at a time. And it's why I'm insisting that we tackle this as a systemic issue. It's a systemic problem, and I think it'll only respond to a systemic solution. So thinking about sort of like systems and structures, you in your plan talk about the Electoral College in D.C. voting rights, which are two sort of structural reforms. Sort of what are other sort of reforms that you think are sort of force multipliers, that if we sort of win them, they allow us to have uh, more power? Well, making it easier to register to vote and to vote is mm -hmm. critical. You know, it's early voting season right now in Indiana for our local races. Yeah. When you come into my office, which is a polling, the lobby of our county city building is a polling place, the very first thing you see is a poster in the window that says stop. It's got a big stop sign. Mm -hmm. And then it talks about voter ID and all the things that could go wrong if you're not prepared to vote. There's been a concerted effort to make it more difficult and to discourage people from voting. We could do something about that. It's why part of the Douglas plan is a 21st century voting rights act. It's why election day ought to be a holiday. It's why automatic voter regist registration ought to happen. It's why we ought to make it easier to vote by mail. You know, there, there are people who've decided that the only way for them to win is if fewer people can vote. Uh, I think that means their policies need a, need a new look. But if we make sure that more people can vote, we're going to make sure not only that those who have been excluded are empowered, mm -hmm. but also that our country makes better decisions. Yeah. And I think that it's not sexy. Look, the process stuff is never sexy. It's why it doesn't get talked about as much. But it is so central to our ability to tackle any other issue we care about from, from wages to gun violence to, to health care. One of the areas that's really been emerging in the civil rights front, um, our organization and many others, folks out in the field are consistently working about the harms that have been caused by big tech and the potential harms down the road from surveillance to the ways that algorithmic bias can sort of supercharge all sorts of um, issues from housing to credit to jobs. Um, the role of these big tech platforms and sort of both giving us so much potential for the future, but possibly dragging us into the past. I'm interested in sort of, can you talk a little bit about sort of what is your plan? And given that you have uh, deep relationships in Silicon Valley and you're not the only candidate, um, how will you both straddle the sort of relationships that you have, the advice that you may have gotten from Mark Zuckerberg and others with the need to hold those institutions accountable? Well, fundamentally, we need greater accountability for tech companies. Uh, for example, Facebook's decision to uh, just absolve itself from gauging whether political ads on its platform are true 
is just the wrong decision. I mean, uh, we don't accept that on television. When you uh, put in a false ad, it gets pulled. Mm -hmm. The same needs to be true on these online platforms too. And the reality is that it's it's not just the, the manipulations that went on in 2016. Uh, it's ongoing, uh, basically, experiments at the expense of the American people done by, in particular, the Trump campaign and their allies, as well as foreign players, really manipulating the weaknesses of tech. Uh, now, I also think that we need to make sure that we're in dialogue with tech companies about what to do. Uh, for example, if, if we're going to establish a different standard for the responsibilities they have as publishers, not just as platforms, there's some really challenging First Amendment issues that we're going to have mm -hmm. to hash out. But the bottom line is that we've got to do the right thing for democracy, the right thing to do for the American people. And as with any other industry, uh, profits have to take a back seat to protecting our country. And I think we've learned the hard way what can happen to our country when the, the, these tech platforms are used to uh, change or, or manipulate our elections. There's another issue going on that I don't think is being talked about enough, although mm -hmm. it's starting to get covered, which is leaving aside the nefarious activity. Just plain online organizing and, and mm -hmm. online advertising is something that my party has been behind on. Uh, and we need to be investing and competing. Again, in addition to making sure that nefarious activity and cheating can't happen, uh, we just need to compete in that space the same way we do on TV and radio. And Democrats have been slow to do it. It's going to be very important to have good uh, outcomes in 2020. Mm -hmm. So given sort of the news that's been bubbling up around some of the ways in which the Facebook was weaponized against Black communities during the 2016 election, given some of the news around the issues with ads, what does a President Pete do in that situation? Well, first of all, we, we established that when civil rights are at stake, uh, then a tech platform has the same responsibilities as any traditional platform has. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also, this is about power. And it's one of the reasons why uh, until we have the right level of economic empowerment, we're going to continue to see shadows of that disempowerment in political and social structures. So, for example, as long as the face of Silicon Valley is disproportionately white, as long as it remains the case that the vast majority of venture capital is going to a few communities in a few states and very little going to businesses run by women, by people of color, uh, even when they are as or more profitable. Uh, as long as that persists, we're, I think, going to continue to see that power gap, that, that economic gap, uh, turn into a power gap and flow into all other areas of our society. It's one of the reasons why a big part of the Douglas plan is about economic empowerment, it's about entrepreneurship, uh, because you have a sector here that, that, that thinks the way the people who design it do. It's one of the reasons why we have bias in algorithms. Um, it, it's not always that there's some consciously racist programmer trying to make things worse. It's that different perspectives are not being taken into account in the very design of the systems that all of us are going to depend on more and more as technology grows. Mm -hmm. You're new to a lot of our members, um, to a lot of our folks. You're um, a mayor of a, of a medium-sized, small city, so a lot of people didn't didn't know who you were. And, and a lot of people did get to um, see, hear about South Bend through some of the news about the issues of policing in your community. And, and South Bend, like so many communities, has issues between police and community relations. It, it would be wrong for anyone to assume that this is just something that was happening in South Bend. Part of this work is to understand how uh, political leaders learn, how they grow um, during moments. And so I'm interested if you could talk to us about uh, what you learned from that experience um, 
things that you might do differently in the future, thing, new things in your toolbox in terms of how you think about both leading and engaging around issues um, involving police community relations. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one, one moment that was a big learning moment. Uh, and, and just if folks haven't followed all of this, one of the things that happened this year was a police shooting, an individual named Eric Logan. Uh, and uh, he was uh, shot over the summer in an encounter with a police officer that's still under investigation. I called for an outside investigation and uh, they're, they're doing their work. And I remember being at a town hall meeting, talking with residents, mostly black, about what had happened. And the, the level, the, the outpouring of anguish and of emotion there uh, was, was almost overwhelming. And one of the things that I learned through that experience was um, when you're on the receiving end, which is your job as the mayor, to be there representing mm -hmm. the city. Uh, and that means representing the city that the police department's part of, right? Um, and you're uh, receiving all of that emotion and anger it can make you defensive right away. Uh, it's just a human thing. But understanding over time and through the dialogue we built out of that experience that the anger is built on pain and the pain is built on fear and it's coming from a very real place among residents who are questioning whether they are safe, uh, questioning whether they are safe in neighborhoods where there's already a lot of violence and questioning whether they can turn to police to keep them safe or whether they ought to be afraid of police. Understanding what's at stake there, I think, has helped me to understand why empowerment is so important and why, as serious as one incident or issue can be, it's always about that and a lot more. It's why in the weeks and months since then, we've sought to uh, invite as many people as possible to be at the table to discuss and, where appropriate, change policies around use of force, around how body cameras work, all of these issues that, that are flashpoints when it comes to policing in the community. The other thing that I've learned, frankly, the hard way, is that not everybody in the uh, white world uh, is ready to have these conversations about racism uh, and about systemic racism. It, again, it puts people on the defensive right away. And we need to have a conversation uh, where white America can learn to accept the ways in which all of us are implicated in a racialized existence, the ways in which none of us are immune from the effects of race, even if part of being white is often that you are not reminded of race nearly as often. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to need mayors and, and we're going to need a president who can see that and, and just as importantly, who can feel that. Mm -hmm. What do you say for, to folks who want to know, reconcile um, sort of those issues bubbling up with now your presidency and want to know how passionate are you about these issues? Um, and I say this as, you know, we've had candidates of all colors who have gone into various offices and have maybe sometimes forgotten about the basis of people who have gotten them there. And that's always a concern of Black folks when they show up to the polls and so I'm interested, and I think our audience is interested, in um, hearing from you about both um, how you will prioritize um, these issues, among many other things that can sometimes push our issues to the side. Yeah. Well, first of all, again, it's, it's rooted in my belief that the future of the American project, mm -hmm. the success of America, depends on us fixing this in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I really think we've reached the point where if inequities continue to widen, then we are going to see the, the collapse of, of, we're already seeing it. We're seeing, for example, with some of these things happening online and, and with Russian interference, we're seeing the ways in which racism and, and uh, uh, racial 
disagreement and, and racial uh, abuse have been weaponized, have been turned into a national security vulnerability. It is that important. But also at a more personal level, I would say that when you are a mayor of a diverse city, especially a city with a past and a city where these issues uh, have, have come up again and again and have, have caused real pain, you know, part of your job as a mayor is to, you kind of live the city. I mean, the whole city is, is kind of in, in, in your heart in some way. And so when there is pain or exclusion or division, that happens in you. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for a president. I will be a president who has lived through the pain of a community on the front lines of so many of these issues, not just around policing and justice, but around housing and home ownership and poverty and how all of them are racialized. doesn't mean I have the same understanding uh, of someone who, who came up as a person of color in that pattern of exclusion. But I do have the understanding that comes with seeking to guide a community that has been torn up by these things and knitting it back together. And I think that is the kind of heart that we need in a president, especially at the moment we're working toward. Look, the day after the Trump presidency ends, on one level it will be a very good day because we won't be dealing with this president anymore. But then again, it's going to be a really tough day for America. We're going to be looking around at, at the rubble of our norms and our institutions and our social fabric. And we're going to need more than ever to find a way to solve problems with bold approaches and to do it together. That's going to require a unifying instinct Mm -hmm. that I believe uh, is cultivated in the heart of a mayor of a city that's seen these kinds of struggle. Great. So part of the what to the how in all of this is how you will work with movements, how you will work with those on the outside pushing and challenging and engaging. And part of how we make any of this happen is that inside-out game. Can you say a little bit about how you've done that in the past, how you've worked with those on the outside advocates to help make things possible or how you will? Yeah. So again, in my experience as mayor, I've learned what it means to really include movements. Uh, I'll never forget a learning moment I had uh, my first year, an activist uh, who I'd invited uh, to be part of a conversation at the mayor's office. And he said, we don't we don't have a seat at the table. And my first thought was, what do you mean? We're literally physically at my table. How, How is it? And that's when I realized that being in the room. Uh, or, or being given a place card and a literal seat at yes. the table doesn't mean you have an actual seat at the table mm-hmm. unless you feel that you're being included. He's now one of my strongest supporters. And we engage a lot of groups, some of which don't support me at all, yeah. but uh, support doing the right thing. And I expect them to be a few steps ahead of where government can get. The same is true nationally as well. This is not about asking the movements to agree with uh, me as a candidate or as a president on issue after issue. It is about responding to the way that movements pull us into the the, the right direction, maybe further than uh, people are often willing to go in the political space, but also crucially, turning to movements to make sure that we have the energy to get things done. What I I think is finally turning the tide, not just on racial issues, but when you look at um, uh, the way the conversation is shifting on guns in America, when you look at climate and uh, uh, the the mass mobilization of very young people, many of them not old enough to vote around around that issue, what we're seeing is that uh, they can create the space for things that uh, candidates have been talking about for a long time, but uh, across my lifetime hasn't often been delivered. And changing the entire uh, structure in which that happens, that's the moment in our hand. And I know that as as many powers as there are in the White House, 
there's no way the pulleys and levers of government alone can do it yeah. unless we're engaging with movements, both to pull us along and to help make sure that we can succeed when we propose something. So part of this election season is candidates coming to Black communities and asking us for our vote, but saying what they're going to do for the Black community, saying, talking about the issues at hand, the disparities. And I think all that's important. That's what elections are about. And that's part of the power the community has built up. But the last question I'm asking each candidate um, is, is to sort of flip that a little bit. You know, Black communities have contributed so much to this country. Black people have contributed so much to this country. I'm interested from you um, in a Black person that has contributed to your understanding of politics, of service, of, of why you're in this fight. If you can share with the audience a Black person, a Black leader, someone who's helped shape your understanding of, of what's possible and what you should be fighting for. Yeah. Well, uh, uh before I was sure I wanted to do this, when I was in college, there was a period when I, I thought I would, wanted to be a journalist. And I got an internship with an investigative unit in Chicago. And uh, uh, the, the reporter I worked for, Renee Ferguson was her name, uh, took me in when my housing fell through. Uh, and she and her husband, Ken, uh, not only uh, gave me a chance to work in journalism, but also uh, gave me a place to stay in Chicago. And just seeing through their eyes both at work where uh, a lot of black residents of Chicago would call our tip line and it would be my job to go through and hear about all the different things that were happening from encounters with the police to stuff that was going on in public housing uh, to just things going on in neighborhoods and with employers, realizing how much pain and how many problems there were, but also seeing the impact that would be made just by telling their story. Uh, you know, even being outside of any of the, uh, uh, the kind of halls of power, just by telling those stories, taught me a lot about uh, how people can empower one another, as well as about the black experience from a, from a Chicago perspective. And then being in a family that created a sense of belonging, uh, a little bit of teasing when they referred to me as their yes. kind of other son. Yes. And also just a sense of uh, um, uh, the, the values that, that, that mattered. Uh, in a family that was very strong in faith, very, very uh, progressive in many ways, but, but different from my own, very different from my own, uh, and, and really helped open my eyes. Um, you know, I think so much depends on our ability to just have a sense of encounter with each other that we're losing. Um, but I think that day-to-day uh, -day experiences, and I think the presidency itself, can, can foster those kinds of encounters, can foster a sense of belonging. Um, that I have felt in very unlikely places and that I want everybody in this moment where belonging is, is so rare in America, uh, that I want everybody to be able to feel. Yeah, that idea of belonging is so, so incredibly powerful. And um, I say this um, as someone who uh, couldn't imagine um, just a few years ago, someone like you on the national stage running, and I'm so proud um, as an openly gay man myself to see you out there and um, and standing up for all the issues you're standing up for. So good luck. Thank and you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you again to Mayor Pete for speaking with me and to all of you for listening. If you like this episode, give it a positive review wherever you're streaming it. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, Devorn Humiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensor. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Catherine St. Louis from Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. See you next week.